Well, I'm actually going to hold off on uh, reading our passage just for a little bit this morning because there's just some preliminary thoughts that uh, I'd like to put before us. Um, Most of us are familiar uh, with the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. The stories there are often referred to as the court tales. Uh, We first meet Daniel and his three friends as they're brought to Babylon and uh, they refuse to eat the king's food. They only want to eat vegetables and drink water because they want to maintain their independence from the king. And then in chapter 2 is the story of Daniel. He, He not only interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but God supernaturally tells him what that dream is. Uh, to, to prove uh, God's power to the king. And, uh, and then in chapter 3, of course, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their refusal to bow down before the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And then chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is judged because of his pride and spends seven years as basically a wild farm animal. And then chapter 5 is the story of the writing on the wall. And then chapter 6, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And then there's chapters 7 through 12, which become very strange very quickly. Uh, Chapter 7 opens, and uh, Daniel is having a vision. First, he sees four beasts, and uh, they're described as being like lions and eagles and humans and bears and leopards, and finally this uh, fourth beast that's really scary and has ten horns and iron teeth, and these beasts, we're told, uh, have dominion. And they use this dominion uh, to destroy everything in their path. Later we find out that these beasts represent the kingdoms of this world. And then, after the initial vision of the beasts, Daniel looks and sees a vision of heaven, where the Ancient of Days is on his throne and he's presiding over all things and he is judging all things and everything is calm and he is in complete control. And then we read this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he, this son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Daniel is having this vision of heaven. He sees this divine being who also looks like a man, or to use Daniel's language, he was one like a son of man. And this divine human figure is given glory and authority and sovereign power and we're told that Daniel sees all nations and peoples in every language worshiping the son of man and then we're told that his dominion will last forever and now through the lens of the new testament we're able to look back at this figure and clearly see that this is Jesus and so Daniel sees God on his throne He sees Jesus receiving an everlasting kingdom. But the question that Daniel has here in chapter 7 is, what about those beasts? Because after the vision of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, Daniel also sees this. He says, as I watched, 
This horn from the fourth beast was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So even though the promise here is that God will judge the kingdoms of this world and give his people a good kingdom, in the meantime, God's holy people will suffer war and defeat. Which is why Daniel closes his vision this way. He says, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel chapter 7 teaches us that there are two kingdoms. There is a kingdom that will one day be given to this divine son of man and those who worship him from every nation and people and language, they will one day possess this kingdom. And then there is another kingdom that consists of the various kingdoms of this world. And at Daniel's time, that would have been Babylon and then Persia, and then later, Rome and Greece. And then after Christ, the pattern just repeats itself with, you know, the Hans and the barbarians and the Mongolians and the Ottoman Empire, all the way up into the kingdoms of the Western world of France and England and the United States. It's true that the more these world powers have been influenced by individual Christians within them, the more common grace these world powers display. But at the end of the, end of the day, these are worldly kingdoms. They are worldly powers. And they are totally separate from the kingdom of heaven. At any time, these world powers could declare war and come and defeat God's holy people. Because the kingdom of heaven is not of this world. Remember Jesus standing before Pilate, right before he's crucified. He's, he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. But according to Daniel 7, one day Jesus' invisible kingdom will be fully realized. One day all nations and people from every language will worship him and his kingdom will have no end. But also according to Daniel 7, in the meantime, God's holy people can expect war and defeat from the kingdoms of this world. And the question is, how exactly does Jesus' eternal kingdom finally conquer the kingdoms of this world? And it is with all of this in mind that we now come to our passage. So please open up your pew Bibles to page number 1500. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 this morning. Page number 1,500, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun... 
and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So according to our passage today, in the person of Jesus Christ— That future kingdom that we just looked at from Daniel 7 has come near. So I have two points I'm going to make this morning. The first, we're going to look at what is the kingdom of heaven, and then how does the kingdom of heaven expand, okay? So that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Ultimately, as we just learned from Daniel 7, which is why we started there, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus's everlasting dominion. For the most part, Daniel calls it the kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers refer to it as the kingdom of God. Uh, We can only speculate why Matthew prefers calling it the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Both terms are referring to the same exact thing. Uh, But the kingdom of heaven highlights the otherworldliness of the kingdom, which would have been important for Matthew's Jewish audience that expected God's kingdom kingdom to come as an earthly, Jewish, national, and political kingdom. So this is Matthew's way of letting his audience know that this kingdom is not earthly. This is the kingdom of heaven. The truth is that God is sovereign— He is the king of all things. He's on his throne. Nothing and no one can do anything to alter his plans or what he intends to do in this world. And yet at the same time, we all know that Satan is the god of this world. And there are worldly kingdoms that are opposed to God's rule and his authority. And they do have real dominion. They have real power. And they are capable of evil and destruction, as we all know. Just turn on the news. You see what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia right now, and that is the expression of the beasts from Daniel 7 exercising their power and their dominion. And this is because God has created us as free creatures, right? We, we have used our freedom to rebel against him, to set up kingdoms that are in total opposition to his will and authority. And the story of the Bible is the story of how this God responds to us and our rebellious kingdoms that we set up. 
First, he calls Abraham. And through him, he builds up the nation of Israel. And the purpose is, is for Israel to be an embassy and an outpost of God's rule and God's reign on this planet. So think about it. Until Israel was finally established as a nation with laws that came directly from God, there was no institution on this entire planet that represented God's rule, God's will, and God's authority. But Israel, Israel rejected God as their king. They wanted a human king. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. They wanted to be a kingdom of this world. And because they rejected God and refused to live under his rule, they eventually suffered the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. The northern kingdom was destroyed and disappeared, and the southern kingdom was conquered and exiled to Babylon. Israel wouldn't listen to God or the prophets that God sent. And so the people of Israel didn't understand that their goal and purpose was not to be God's exclusive ethnic, national, and political kingdom. Their goal and purpose has always been, as we just saw in Daniel 7, to welcome every nation and people and language into God's kingdom. But Israel couldn't do it because of sin. They were chosen by God to bless the nations, but instead they became entitled. Because of sin, they wanted the blessing for themselves and for God to judge the nations. They totally forgot that everything they had from God was because of his grace and because of his mercy and because of his kindness. They didn't deserve any of it, and yet they wanted God to judge the nations. They thought that if they could just keep the law of God and make every other Israelite fall in line, then God would finally bless them with a national and political kingdom that they were looking forward to. They they couldn't understand that the problem wasn't primarily their level of obedience in terms of the law. The problem was their heart. They needed a new heart. They needed to be rescued from slavery to sin. They needed to be rescued out of the kingdoms of this world. They needed to be reconciled with God and forgiven and transformed from the inside out. They needed to change their ultimate allegiance from the kingdoms of this world to the true eternal kingdom consisting of all people, all nations, and languages. And so God sends his son as the true Israel to fulfill the original goal and purpose of the nation of Israel. Jesus came to establish an outpost on this earth where God's will, God's rule, and God's reign are on display. And as we'll see as we go through the book of Matthew, that outpost is the church. And so we're introduced to Jesus in the book of Matthew as the earthly king of Israel, the son of David, but also as Emmanuel. God with us. He is the ultimate earthly king and the king of heaven. The magi from the east come and they recognize him as the king of the Jews. And in the very next chapter, God comes and declares him as the son of God with whom he is well pleased. He is the son of man and the son of God. He is the king of heaven and the king of Israel. And in him we're told that the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's not an ethnic, national, or political kingdom. It is a kingdom where the hearts of people from every nation and people and language are transformed from the inside out so that we worship him. Because that's the kingdom from Daniel 7. 
And Daniel 7 makes it clear what the kingdom is and always has been. Which is why Matthew is so clear to tell us that the kingdom arrives as a light in Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew tells us that Jesus left Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So not only does Jesus come on the scene in an area that was once part of the faithless northern kingdom, but he begins his ministry in an area that is full of Gentiles. Right to the south is Samaria, and then the Decapolis, which is 10 Greco-Roman cities. Right to the north is Phoenicia and Syria, and Galilee itself was full of Gentiles. It was considered a backwater, backwoods, and barely Jewish area. It would be like if you wanted to be a famous country singer and you started your career in Ripon instead of going to Nashville. It would make no sense. Yet Jesus comes because his purpose is for the world, for the nations. From the very beginning of his ministry, he's making it clear that through him and through him alone, the kingdom of God comes and his kingdom is a kingdom for all nations and peoples and languages. Remember, Matthew ends his gospel with these words from Jesus. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the story of the gospels, is the story of Jesus conquering the kingdoms of this world and receiving all authority in heaven and on earth through his work on the cross. The victory over the kingdoms of this world comes at the cross. Paul says in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The decisive defeat of the kingdoms of this world happens at the cross. In Philippians, Paul says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his death on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And now, through faith in Jesus and what he accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection, Paul says God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the kingdom of heaven is God's invisible rule that at first came near in the person of Jesus Christ and now is actually broken into this world through his life, death, and resurrection where Jesus defeated the powers of darkness on the cross and now is rescuing people from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into his kingdom of light. It's not national, it's not ethnic, it's not political. So how does this kingdom now expand? It takes us to our second point. Um... The kingdom first actually entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ, 
Once the rightful king took his throne, the kingdom of heaven shone like a light in the darkness. And then, once John the Baptist was arrested and Jesus chose to begin his public ministry, we're told this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So there are two things that happen for this kingdom to expand. First, the message goes out through preaching. And then that preaching demands the response of repentance. Now, some would argue that faith is not mentioned here. But just because a concept is not specifically mentioned in a passage doesn't mean that that concept is not present in that passage. Uh, Mark tells the same story, and this is the words that he uses. He says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, it's not necessary to make belief an explicit part of the call because repentance and faith are so intertwined that you cannot have one without the other. Just because someone is sorry for their sins does not mean that they have repented. Repentance is a change of our mind about our sin, where we go from loving it and clinging to it to hating it and seeing it as the misery that it truly is. Repentance is turning from our sin and then turning to God for his mercy. And then the fruit of repentance is a changed life. And every link of that chain is necessarily tied together. We, we receive the message of the gospel by faith. We repent of our sins necessarily, and then our life necessarily produces the fruit of that repentance. And because this is what repentance is, you cannot have repentance without faith. Faith is created in our hearts by the Spirit of God when through preaching we hear the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. We know it is true, not just for sinners, but for me personally. And then we receive it and rest in it. And this kind of faith necessarily results in repentance. So we are given this faith by grace. It is a gift of God that is given to us, enabling us to receive the salvation that God freely offers to us in Christ. And then repentance is a fruit of that grace. There is no faith that is not repentant, and there's no repentance that doesn't come from faith. So the call to repent here from Jesus is a call to believe because faith is necessary for true repentance to happen. So the kingdom of heaven expands when the good news of the kingdom is preached and then men and women respond with faith and repentance. And this results with a break, a radical break with the world. Matthew goes on. He says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if you've ever thought that it must have been easy for the disciples to leave everything and follow Jesus because they were poor fishermen, um, the actual details of their call is, uh, makes that a different story. These were upper middle class small business owners. They owned boats and nets, which have, would, have, would have required a good amount of capital to invest in for that equipment. Peter, we find out later, is married. <laughs> 
So these men had family businesses to maintain, as well as families to provide for. Just imagine walking away from your family business and your family to go and follow an itinerant preacher. Those kind of ties were at least as strong at this time as they are right now. And now we know from the Gospel of John that this isn't the first time that these men run across Jesus. They, they know who he is. They know what he's about. But this is the moment Jesus calls them to make a decisive break with their former life. And we know that he doesn't call all of us or even most of us to literally walk away from our businesses or our family. But he calls us all to make as equally of a dramatic break with our former life which is the fruit of repentance. Our hopes, our dreams, our allegiance is no longer to what this world values. For the man who has faith or the woman who has faith, who has repented of their sins, Christ and Christ alone becomes the center of our affections. And whatever he calls us to, we go. Why? Because we believe his words. Because he has accepted us. He is our king. He is our treasure. He is better than life. And then he sends us out to fish for people. Listen to how Peter will later describe our purpose as Christians. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, or out of the domain of darkness, to use Paul's language, into his wonderful light or into the kingdom of his son. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this kingdom expands when the citizens of the kingdom go and fish for people. When we go and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we call men and women to repentance and faith based on the finished work of Jesus, and yes, some of us are more gifted at evangelism than others, but every single one of us is responsible to go and to fish for people, primarily starting with our own children. But it ought not to end there. We take this call into our workplaces. We take this call into our daily lives. The kingdom of heaven expands when sinners are brought to faith, repent of their sins, are united to Christ forever, and that only happens through preaching. It only happens through preaching Christ, which is what produces faith and repentance. Listen to Paul. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ, which is exactly why Jesus' ministry includes teaching and preaching. Paul goes on, or Matthew goes on. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, which is the exact same word that was translated preaching earlier. So Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So this is the heart of Jesus' ministry. He goes around teaching the content of the kingdom of heaven, 
which next week we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount, which is the content of the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the gospel or the good news is news about what God has done for sinners in Christ. The good news is of the kingdom is that in Christ there is redemption from slavery to sin, there is reconciliation between God and man, and there is the offer of full and free forgiveness of sin and full and free rescue from the power of sin for anyone who will simply repent of their sins and believe this word about Christ. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, no one understood how God was going to be able to give them all these wonderful promises. Because Christ had not died, atonement had not been made for sin yet. But faith in the promises of the gospel is not ultimately about knowing how God can give us the things he has promised. Faith is believing his word. That he will give what he has promised simply because he has promised it. Because Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the king. And Jesus had come near. And then as a result of the good news of the kingdom being taught and preached, healing and wholeness follow. The kingdom of heaven expands as we fish for people through proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, through teaching people about the kingdom and how to obey everything Jesus commands. And then what happens when the kingdom expands through the hearts and minds of those who have believed the gospel, the evidence of the reality of the kingdom becomes visible through ministries of mercy. When we see Christians building wells, caring for the poor, coming and praying for and being with the sick, they're not expanding the kingdom through those acts of mercy. Like Jesus here, they're displaying that the evidence of the kingdom is real. When the light of the gospel shines in our hearts, we become the light of the world, and our good works authenticate the message of the gospel. But the good news of the kingdom is news. It is a message that must be proclaimed by those who are citizens of the kingdom because that is how Jesus expanded the kingdom, by proclaiming the gospel, by proclaiming the message of the kingdom. He is the one who grows his kingdom. He is the one who builds his kingdom. We are merely citizens of the kingdom who proclaim the message of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and the reality of your kingdom is, is a huge biblical concept. And yet we see that it is a concept, it is a reality that comes near in Christ, that is inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection. And it is a reality that we enter into through faith, repentance. It is a reality that we invite others into through proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. May we be given great grace, Father, to receive and believe this promise and then to proclaim this news as the only message that reconciles sinners to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And may we learn to live as citizens of the kingdom as we begin to study the Sermon on the Mount next. May we see what it is to truly be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.